you know, we just sang about the greatness of God and what he's done. And I believe that even in what we sing, God can get our attention and grip our hearts. And if you're here this morning and you've never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, um, you don't have to wait until the end of a service. You don't have to walk forward. That's fine. All of those are fine. But if you need to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and it's, he's working and stirring your heart, you just want to do that. You just want to cooperate with him wherever it is that you are and whatever it is that he's doing. Two weeks ago on Tuesday, I was headed to the doctor um, because of family history. My doctor wanted to get a picture of my heart. He wanted to make sure I had one. <laughs> on the way there, I got to thinking, you know, I probably should have left the caffeine at home. And so they put me on this table and hooked up three pads and I'm watching these numbers, and one of them is just kind of flittering off of the charts. And this gal said, you know, I think there's something wrong with the connection on that pad, so I'm going to change it. And so she changed it, and I'm watching, and I'm thinking, uh-oh. And the numbers just keep flittering and flickering, and she looked at me, and she said, did you have caffeine this morning? And I said, we're going to need to reschedule this, aren't we? <laughs> And she said, yes, we are. And she said, when you come back, you need to be fasting. Now, a lot of times when you're fasting for medical procedures, and I'm sure that some of us, many of us probably, have had to fast because of things that they're going to do, um, we do that for medical purposes. Uh, and so they schedule it in the morning. Well, I think just because I did what I did, she scheduled it for 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So she wants me going without food all day long. They were very kind, but... There is, my point is, there is fasting for medical reasons, and there is fasting for spiritual reasons. Medical fasting is not spiritual fasting. And this morning, we're going to find an example in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, of them fasting, and we want to talk about that as a tool for a spiritual battle, a spiritual weapon that we can use when we're desperate for God. We're in Esther chapter 4, and we're not going to talk about the whole story, but Esther is going to introduce us, this particular chapter, to the spiritual weapon of fasting when I'm desperate. Desperate. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Something had happened, and we're going to just walk through it quickly, that caused this grown man to rip his clothes, put on sackcloth, which was uncomfortable, burlap-like, goat's hair type of clothing, and either smear ashes on his body or they rolled in the ashes. He was desperate. It was a crisis situation. And I want to remind us a little bit about what had taken place just to give us a little bit of background. And we find that in chapter 3, and I'm just going to read a few selective verses. It says, in, but King Ahasuerus, uh, no, King, uh, when, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. King Ahasuerus is the king. He's a Persian king. He's a powerful man. But he's not as powerful as the king that they had overcome. That was King Nebuchadnezzar, and that was Babylon. When the king of Babylon spoke, his word was accomplished. 
if he spoke again to undo what he had spoken, his word was accomplished again. The second kingdom of, Daniel's, of King Nebuchadnezzar's vision, Daniel's interpretation, was a Medo-Persian kingdom. That's King Ahasuerus. They had created some laws that when the king speaks, his word is accomplished. But if he tries to undo his word, he couldn't do it. It was considered the law of the Medes and the Persians. When the king speaks, it's done. He can't undo his word. So he was powerful, most powerful man on the earth at this particular time. But he wasn't as powerful as King Nebuchadnezzar. So you can imagine some of the trickery and some of the deceit that went on in political places during this kind of a situation kind of reminds you of America and Washington. Um, We're in chapter 3 where it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. That's a big deal. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, and advanced him and set his throne throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who was a Jew, uh, Esther's relative, did not bow down or pay homage. This infuriated Haman. As he walked down the streets, everyone would bow down, they would hail him, but not this man. Chapter 6, verse second half says, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And chapter 3 and 4 begin that story. Chapter, verse 8 says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, a little bit of of deception here, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. They do not keep the king's laws. What that probably meant was this this man Haman doesn't bow down to me like everybody else does. Verse 9 says, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. I will pay you to destroy this people. It's to your advantage. And the king thought, why not? My coffers grow. These people, maybe they're not doing what I want them to do. Verse 13 says, so letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. These couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued. And then look at this. It says in chapter 3, verse 15, towards the end, And the king and Haman sat down to drink. No big deal. We're going to destroy, we're going to kill, we're going to annihilate women and children, men and women, older and younger, And they sat down to drink. Pass the salt. What are we having for dinner? It was nothing to them. Haman was an Agagite, likely a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. At least he was of those people, likely a descendant of the king as well. They were longtime enemies of the Jews. God knew that. 
the Amalekites were told to the, the Amalekites were to be destroyed centuries earlier, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, but Saul failed to obey the command, and now Haman has an opportunity to destroy not only Mordecai, who won't bow down to him, but also all of the Jews, Mordecai's people that are in the Medo-Persian kingdom. Likely he is using this as a revenge because of what had happened against his people even though they weren't completely destroyed. And so we see the story. We see a crisis that resulted in an absolute complete desperation for God. And then we see a spiritual tool used in their desperation. Look at chapter 4. Let's read uh, the first few verses. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud, bitter cry. This man is desperate. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it wasn't just this man and this man alone. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathash, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of his people. And Hathish went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathish and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man goes in to the king inside the inner court... Uh, without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that they may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. When Mordecai heard about this decree, destroy, kill, annihilate anybody that has Jewish blood in all of the Medo-Persian empire, his response was to rip his clothes, to put on sackcloth, uncomfortable sackcloth, and either smear ashes on himself or roll in the ashes as well. He cried out with a loud, bitter cry. We've seen crying already in this series that we're doing on being desperate for God. We've actually seen it several times. Hannah cried out to the Lord. Elijah, last week we spoke of, he cried out to, excuse me, two weeks ago. David in Psalm 42 and 43 cried out to the Lord as well. The difference with Mordecai is that his isn't just a crying out to the Lord. His is a bitter anguish cry out to the Lord. He also tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. His grief was so heavy that he showed it in this way. It was an outward demonstration of mourning and repentance and complete humiliation and desperation and despair. We see different ones in the Old Testament wearing sackcloth and smearing ashes on themselves. And I want to highlight some of this. 
We see different ones. Daniel did that after he had discerned that the 70 years of a captivity were coming to an end. In Daniel chapter 9, it says this. When I discerned it, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. When Jacob had sent his other sons who actually had sold Joseph into slavery. Jacob thought his son was dead, and he, and he, pour, he put on sackcloth. The people of Nineveh, when they heard the message of God's judgment coming, put on sackcloth and ashes as well. There are others in the Old Testament. In Revelation, the two witnesses who are going to preach for half of the tribulation period are clothed in sackcloth and ashes. I don't know that it's prescribed as much as it's a description of what's going to happen or what the Old Testament prophets said that cities or individuals should do as well. Other times it's, it's, a, it's a humble, broken, desperate reaction. And God sees a condition of the hearts of those who put on sackcloth and ashes. He answers according to His will, not what their desire is. Not everybody gets what they ask for during these times of prayer. But it's a, it's a demonstration of outward contrition and repentance. Mordecai's response of tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes wasn't in obedience to a command. It was the response of hearing, all of my people are going to be utterly destroyed. They're going to be, the word that's used is annihilated. They're going to cease to exist. I've seen... Someone wear sackcloth and ashes one time. Yeah. Sometimes these emotions come and I just don't even plan it. I've seen this one time. George was his name. A church was having significant difficulties. I'm confident that it was more complex than what I knew because I wasn't in the inner workings of what was going on there. Humility, I can say this, humility and repentance didn't seem to be present. It was destroying the church. It ended up splitting the church, actually. This man was broken for his church, and he came to church twice dressed in sackcloth and ashes. It was very sobering. There's a second spiritual tool. I want to move on from that. There's a second spiritual dynamic tool, if you will, that's mentioned in this story. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. I don't see a prescription of sackcloth and ashes. I see it as being a response when there's complete brokenness, and in that way it would be appropriate. I don't know that it's prescribed something that's commanded. This other one seems to be. Look at verse 12, chapter 4. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to what this man said. His insight was incredible. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I know God's word is what he's saying. I know the promises that he's given. I know, I know the words that he's spoken. We're going to continue to exist. And it might be that that deliverance comes from another place. He's trusting God. He knows God has made his people promises. But he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. God will protect his people, but you're going to die, Esther, if you choose to do nothing. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. The spiritual dynamic that I want to draw our attention to for the rest of the message this morning is spiritual fasting. Spiritual fasting is not having no caffeine when you're going to go get your heart picture taken care of. That's medical fasting. There's a difference between medical fasting and spiritual fasting. In their time of desperation absolute grief, complete hopelessness. If God doesn't act, if he doesn't do something, nothing is going to happen. They fasted and called upon the Lord. Here they did it collectively. We see other places in scripture where it's done individually. And this morning we're not looking to try and cover all of the different aspects of fasting, uh, the thoughts or uh, benefits of fasting and, 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 uh, this morning. But I want us to see that fasting was a spiritual tool that was used in this situation, which was an intense spiritual battle that if it had not happened, it would have resulted in the annihilation of the Jews. In their hour of desperation, they sought God's favor through prayer and fasting. You probably have read Esther, or maybe you're here and you never have, or maybe it's been a while since you've read Esther. We're going to leave Esther now. I might reference it a minute or for a, a, a time or two, but maybe I've piqued your attention enough that this week you'll go home and you'll read the story of Esther. It's an incredible story of how God saved his people. I want us to use Esther and Mordecai's story this morning to introduce to us this tool, this spiritual weapon during, listen to this, during desperate times. And, and I've talked with you, some of you, we've all gone through times that are intensely desperate and not all times are intensely desperate. But it might be that you're in one, it might be that you're going to be in one, and this might be a tool um, that you're able to use. I'm going to ask a penetrating question. I don't want your hands up. I want you just to respond in your heart. I did as well. When was the last time you had a spiritual fast because of intense spiritual battle? Has it been months, years, decades, never? God, I don't see a way out of this situation. I'm desperate. I'll read a book. I'll talk to a counselor. But the idea of drawing near to God through a spiritual fast just doesn't even enter my thoughts. I don't see a change of heart in somebody. If you don't do something, I don't think anything will be done. Spiritual, intense spiritual battle. We find different times and different motives for fasting in Scripture, but we do see fasting. And I'm going to highlight some of those. Could it be that we don't even think about it because we're not interested in that level of sacrifice? To go without lunch when I'm hungry for lunch is just beyond my thoughts. To set a time of three days or a week of going without food is just more than I'm willing to lay down. Maybe we don't think about it fasting because it's not emphasized in preaching in pulpits these days. And because of that, I just don't even think about it. Or maybe I'm just comfortable. If and when we're desperate, really desperate. I'm not talking about uncomfortable. I'm talking about desperate. 
crying out to the Lord, praying, fasting, if used for nothing else, can be used to help me draw near to God, the very thing I need during my times of desperation. I think I need a situation changed. What I really need is to draw near to God and, and receive the peace of God that passes understanding that he's able to give. Maybe he'll change the situation. He did with Esther and Mordecai. He didn't with David. And so maybe he does. That's up to him. He knows, he knows now and he knows the future and it's his will that we should be seeking. Jesus is recorded fasting as he was launching his earthly ministry. He'd been baptized by John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3. And then it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And, and notice where the first temptation comes, bread. He's hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the first temptation that comes is bread. What's morally wrong with bread? Nothing is morally wrong with bread. But for Jesus, it was a temptation. Not only did Jesus fast here, but he includes teaching on a proper way to fast in his Sermon on the Mount. Let me read a couple of verses. Chapter 6, verse 16 of Matthew when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if I were to be fasting or if you were to be fasting, it should be undiscernible to the people around us because our fasting is unto the Lord and I'm drawing near to God. I'm not lifting myself up and showing myself as this spiritual individual who's willing to sacrifice. Jesus is saying, let it be done and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He also mentions an improper boasting about fasting in the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. If you remember that story in Luke chapter 18, the self-righteous Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I have. But he didn't go down to his house justified. Instead, he exalted himself. So it isn't something that I do to set myself up. It's a draw near to God spiritual weapon that, that, I can, that I can access when I'm in spiritual battle, especially when I'm in a desperate place. The disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus with a question, a valid question. He didn't speak to them like he did the Pharisees. They said this, then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom, Jesus himself, will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. So while it's not a command, go fast every day, every week, Jesus treats it as a spiritual subject that it's going to happen. And so I take us back to the question that's penetrating that I asked myself, that I ask you also. So when was the last time that I even thought about it? Whether I even engaged it or not is a whole different deal. But when was the last time that I thought about it? Jesus treats it as a spiritual discipline that occasionally we should, we should, um, uh, should happen in our hearts and in our lives. Fasting is when believers express themselves. This is a quote. Fasting is when, most of it anyway. 
Fasting is when believers express themselves in an undivided and intense devotion to the Lord and to the concerns of spiritual life, sometimes very specific things like uh, Esther and Mordecai. They were intense and very specific in what they were fasting for. David was as well. You'll see in just a minute. This devotion. Excuse me, this devotion is expressed by abstaining for a short while for, uh, from such normal and good things as food and drink, resulting in a time of uninterrupted communion with God. That doesn't mean that you have to stop life, that you don't go to work. Um, you continue on with the activities that you have, and you just choose to not indulge the flesh with some of the normal things that we do and eat and consume so that I'm reminded and I'm drawn closer and near to God during, during an intense time of spiritual need. For Jesus, Luke 4, like Matthew 4, says that he returned after 40 days of a 40-day fast in the power of the Spirit, and then he launched his ministry. For Esther and Mordecai and the Jews, it was a way of beseeching God for his favor in a desperate situation. Daniel did the same thing. It says in chapter 9, verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Anna, the prophetess, didn't depart from the temple, it says, Luke, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I don't know how she did that. That's what it says. That doesn't mean that she never ate like ever, ever, ever. But there were consistent times of her worship to the Lord in the temple of fasting and prayer. David, you remember the story, the inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. The child was afflicted and was going to die. It says, in chap- it says in verse 16 of some chapter, I can't remember which one, maybe 2 Samuel 15, but I'm not sure. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted, went in, and lay all night on the ground. I would lay on the ground, but I just couldn't get up. You'd hear me moaning too much, okay? He he laid on the ground and refused everything, and he was beseeching God for this child's favor. David arose... No... Beseeching God for this child's favor, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted, went in, lay down on the uh, all uh, lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him uh, to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Mordecai and Esther received the deliverance that they sought the Lord for. David didn't get what he sought the Lord for. So we have to let God be God. It isn't I get my will because of this spiritual weapon that I engage. It's I engage this spiritual weapon to draw near to God and then his will be done. David didn't get what he asked for, but he drew near to God. Esther and Mordecai and the Jews fasted and prayed. God gave them favor. Get or don't get the burden of your heart in both cases These individuals drew near to God. And look at David's reaction afterwards. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth after a night of fasting and seeking God on behalf of the child that maybe God will grant mercy and grace And he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. 
He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. He had an intense time of drawing near to God, not to manipulate God, to draw near to God and seek his favor, let God be God, and he did. And when he recognized the result isn't what I had hoped the result was going to be, he worshiped, and then he called for food, and he ate again. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, we learned from James a few months ago. God is our refuge, my refuge, my strength, a very present help in trouble. When Jerry is in trouble, when you are in trouble, God is your refuge and your strength a very present help in whatever trouble we find ourselves in. And listen to this one. Therefore, we're not going to fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The earth is falling apart, and God is going to be my refuge and strength. When the relationships or the health or the money or the whatever it is that's your desperation is falling apart, God still has the wherewithal and the capacity and the desire to be our refuge and strength. And one of the tools to get me there is prayer and crying out to the Lord and spiritual fasting. Not medical fasting, not leaving caffeine alone, dumb Jerry going to the heart doctor, but spiritual fasting drawing near to God. Fasting, at least one of the things fasting does is to help me draw near to God. When I'm determined I'm going to fast for a particular amount of time, a 24-hour period, maybe longer. For David, it was a night. For Jesus, it was 40 days. For Esther and Mordecai, it was three days. In the early church in Acts 13 and 14, it's an unspecified time. Or maybe it's a meal a day for a week. When the hunger comes and my stomach growls or I get thirsty, it reminds me I'm denying my flesh because I want to draw near to God. And so it casts me into God. I'm burdened for this particular situation. I'm drawing near to you. This is what I'm praying for. Your will be done. It reminds me. I'm choosing to fast. I'm denying my, myself food because I'm drawing near to God. It reminds me to offer a prayer to God in whatever situation has driven me to fast. When there's a crisis around me that's out of my control, I could fast. You could as well. And when hunger hits, I'm driven to prayer and drawing near to God, and I cry out to Him for my crisis. Like when Jesus said to His disciples, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting a spiritual crisis that was there. Ezra proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us, for our little ones, and all of our possessions. Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus and didn't eat or drink for three days waiting for Ananias. In Psalm 69, David says he wept and humbled his soul with fasting Daniel was so troubled by a vision he was given by the Lord in Daniel 10. He understood it. He knew it was truth. His response was, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint my feet, myself at all for a full three weeks. 
Matthew, Jesus says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their faces may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your feet, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Zeviton from Zizhoka a long time ago was wrong. Now, hopefully he's grown just like all of us grow, and we grant that as well. But him and I were talking one day about fasting. Zeh was a hard worker, an intensely hard worker. And his thought on fasting was that this spiritual tool, this dynamic, was for people who didn't have to work hard physically, like people that are in the ministry, I think is what he was saying. But, but Zeviton, I'm sure would go through spiritual desperation and crisis as well. And while his fasting might look different than mine or Esther and Mordecai's or David's or Daniel's, it's a time when we draw near to God. It's a tool that's in our spiritual armory. It's a spiritual weapon, if you will. And when we're absolutely desperate, not inconvenienced, but when we're desperate for God, why not use the tools that are available? I understand the benefit of books and opinions. I get that. But why not access the tools that God has given us to draw near to him? And fasting at its very least would help us do that. I want us to learn from Esther and Mordecai's story and from the others mentioned. I'd like to suggest that fasting, spiritual fasting, be added to our arsenal of spiritual weapons for spiritual warfare. Let's be honest. Aren't we quicker to talk to somebody than to draw near to God. And he wants us to draw near to him. And fasting is a tool that helps us get there. Do you have a desperate situation now? Is there a dis- desperate situa- situation around the corner for you? Let's utilize this spiritual tool that is so rarely mentioned, and yet we see it throughout Scripture. Let's use it for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you something that's rarely talked about, and yet we see, it, we see it sprinkled throughout Scripture, and that is spiritual fasting, drawing near to you and you drawing near to us. And Lord, I pray that in the crises that are represented in this place even right now, that you would draw your children to, this, to the consideration of this spiritual fast as they draw near to you, and then may we engage and, and be submissive to what you desire. And then, Lord, for the next crisis or desperate situation that I or others of us have around the corner, would you remind us of this tool? And may we be inclined to pick it up and draw near to you and find the peace of God that passes understanding in the midst of situations where the whole earth is falling apart around us. May we find your peace. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.